This week on The Joys of Binge Reading, Strange Sally Diamond, the latest dark and twisty thriller from award-winning Irish novelist Liz Nugent. Welcome to The Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Lena, and on Binge Reading Today, Liz talks about her gripping new psychological bestseller, Always Laced with Black Humor. Liz explains how Sally is pretty like herself, Liz without a filter. She tells us what she's learnt from TV shows like Breaking Bad and how she came to set part of her story in New Zealand. We've got our usual book giveaway, historic fiction with strong female leads this week, including one of my books, Sadie's Vow, book one in my latest Home at Last series. And don't forget, if you enjoy this show, Leave us a review wherever you listen to the podcast so others will find us too. It really does help spread the word. But now, here's the show. Hello there, Liz, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Jenny. Thank you very much. It's nice to be virtually in New Zealand. I wish I was there for real. I think that you have visited here, haven't you? But we'll talk about that a bit, little bit later. You've had a brilliant career as a novelist. You're on to book five we're going to be talking about today. But right from the very start, you've had bestsellers and lots of very positive attention, numerous Irish book awards. We should mention, if people don't realise it from your accent, that you are talking from Ireland. How did you manage to hit the ground running like that? I don't know. I think my first novel, Unraveling Oliver, It's a domestic noir story in the same way that Girl on a Train and Gone Girl were those sort of domestic stories. So they weren't like police detective thrillers. They were about things that happened within families or within broken families or centred around the home and the domestic situation, really. And I think Unraveling Oliver almost rode in on the coattails of those books, if you like. They all came out around the same time. So I think certainly in Ireland, I went almost straight to number one. The book came out, it was a debut. It didn't go straight to number one. I think it languished around nine or 10, but I was so thrilled to be in the top 10. And then suddenly it went to number one and it stayed there for weeks and weeks and weeks. I think it was like 13 weeks or something at number one. And I was so shocked. And then it went on to win Crime Novel of the Year Award, which was a further shock because I didn't know I'd written a crime novel. <laughs> Actually, that is the domestic thriller genre, which has come into huge popularity in the last few years. And do you have any feeling for why that might be, why it resonates with readers at this time? Well, I think possibly it might have something to do that was around the time that Me Too was becoming such an issue that women were beginning to speak out about the abuses in the workplace and domestic abuse. And so possibly that might be a reason why it caught fire the way it did and why 
people are looking at these stories that women are writing about domestic terrorism as opposed to international espionage, which is a preferred domain of men. We were talking about, hang on a second, you can be terrorized in your own home as well as by your by somebody else's army or somebody else's renegades. So terrorism can happen in the kitchen as well as it can happen on the battlefield. Yeah. Your books all have intensely brilliant twists. And your newest and the one we're talking about today, Strange Sally Diamond, is no exception. The opening is just really mind-boggling when you read that first paragraph. And because it is so striking, I wondered if you'd mind reading that first paragraph to us. Sure. Okay. Let me just... I should have had this open before we started, but here we go. Put me out with the bins, he said regularly. When I die, put me out with the bins. I'll be dead, so I won't know any different. You'll be crying your eyes out. And he would laugh, and I'd laugh too, because we both knew that I wouldn't be crying my eyes out. I never cry. Yeah, so in those few lines, you've already told us that Sally is different from other people. It establishes the fact that there is something not uh, typical about Sally's behaviour. Somebody who doesn't cry and is quite confident about the fact that she doesn't cry. And so questions are asked in that first paragraph. Is she not crying because she doesn't love her father? Or is she not crying? You know, what? why? It just sounds off because they're laughing together and yet... She's not going to cry when he dies. There's something strange about Sally. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And all of your books that I've seen anyway have exactly that same shock opening. You've said that you learnt this from TV shows like Breaking Bad. Tell us a bit about that. Well, I loved Breaking Bad and The Sopranos and all of those shows, Ozark, about very flawed and damaged people. And I think they're far more interesting than the Waltons or the of the Prairie, which are all about like lovely families who are all very nice. And I, I just find flawed and damaged characters in fiction. I hasten to add, my husband is a very nice man, but I find those flawed uh, characters very interesting. But I always, in most of the other books, and I'm not talking about Sally Diamond, but most of the other books, they're told from the point of view of a sociopath or a psychopath. And this is the first time I've departed a bit from that and written from the point of view of somebody who's actually very good and straightforward, almost too straightforward because of her difference. And I really enjoyed writing her. It was quite a relief because I, I don't know why I had always leant towards writing these monstrous characters before. But writing Sally was a great relief to me. I really loved her by the end of it. Yeah, that's wonderful. How do you get inside the heads of these monsters? Uh, well, alarmingly easily. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I trained as an actress many years ago. And I think that really helped me to get inside the mind of a character. So when it's a character that I'm writing myself, I think like they do. And so the kind of sociopathic characters that I'm dealing with, it's not like they wake up in the morning thinking, whose life am I going to screw up today? 
it's always that they have some rationale behind she shouldn't have provoked me or he bought it on himself or if he hadn't done that, I wouldn't have had to do that. There's always some rationale behind the way that they're thinking. So they have a kind of a superiority complex and they have a, a logic behind their actions. Even though it's really askew, there is a logic to what they do. And a lot of it stems from background trauma. And that is also the case with Sally. But because she doesn't remember any of it, all of this happened, all of the trauma that happened to Sally happened before she was seven years old. And for various reasons, which are revealed in the book, she doesn't remember any of it. So she has no idea when we meet her around the age of 42, I think, she has no idea what her background really is, where she really came from. She has always known that she was adopted and hasn't been curious about her birth parents because she's very accepting of what's in front of her. Like her mother, who died when she was a teenager, as far as she knows, and her father, who is her adoptive parents, I'm talking about, her father, who is a psychiatrist. But turns out, very early on in the book, to have been her mother's psychiatrist, which leads us down a very dark path. You also manage, however, even with some of these dark characters, to create sympathy and understanding for them. And I'm thinking in Sally about Peter, who mm -hmm. in the end, he follows an inevitable path into the dark side, which we fully understand because we've seen all the way through the book the things that are happening to him. But in the end, when he makes that final self-justifying call, we're still shocked by it. I thought that was a wonderfully delicate way that you allowed him continue to develop, but end up really very like his own father. Yes, I didn't know that's what I was going to do with him until I got to the end. And then I just thought, okay, if... This was the scenario, like I, do, I can't really say too much without spoiling it, yeah, but if yeah. this scenario, Peter and Sally are the main characters in the book. Sally's story is told in the present tense, in present day at least, and Peter's story is told from his childhood up to the present day. And somewhere along the line, you will realize that these timelines are going to collide at some stage. And I wasn't sure how... Things would play out when they did collide, when they did finally meet as adults. So when I got there, I just really rattled my brain and thought, okay, would, would they find commonality? Would they get on? And I realized that it wouldn't really be possible given their extremely different backgrounds and extremely different experiences, despite their relationship. I can't say any more than that because it's was it but their actual relationship, it's it they've had very different experiences. And I just didn't see any other way of it ending for him. I didn't see that he could find redemption in any other way. Mm -hmm. So yeah, he goes off down a bad road. A good part of Strange Sally does take part in New Zealand because the villain of the piece debunks to New Zealand when he fears that he's going to be caught. And so quite a bit of the book is located in 
a tourist town in New Zealand called Rotorua, which is famous for its mud hot pools and things. And I see on your website that you have actually conducted workshops in New Zealand. I wondered if you'd been to Rotorua during that trip or whether you'd used the web to find out all the details about it. No, I was invited to the University of Otago in Dunedin, where there's a centre for Celtic studies, Scottish and Irish studies, run by Scottish crime writer called Liam McIlvanny. And he held a festival called Celtic Noir in the autumn, oh sorry, your spring of 2019. So I spent three weeks, four weeks driving from the top of the North Island down to the bottom of the South Island because I thought if I'm going all the way to New Zealand, first of all, I want to see it. And second of all, like, why not organize a sort of a mini book tour? So I enlisted the help of my good Kiwi friend, Craig Sisterson. Uh Aha. And Craig set up a tour for me, and one of the stops on the tour was Rotorua. And I was really taken with the place, and plus, it has an excellent bookshop, McLeod's Bookshop. And I actually, I think I mentioned McLeod's in the book. I think it does get a mention. And Whitcool's gets mentioned. I always try to mention bookshops and libraries, real bookshops and real libraries and books that I write, because bookshops and libraries are so important to me and to every writer and reader. So yeah, it suited me because I had to do a little bit of research on Rotorua, not just about the hot pools, which are important to the story, but also about property prices. And if somebody was to run away and try to set up a new life in New Zealand in 1980, where would be the cheapest place to buy property? And from my research, I found out that it would be Rotorua. How fantastic. That answers another question, actually, because one of your characters has got the surname Sisterton. Sisterton. And of course, I do know Craig. He's well known in New Zealand because he set up National Mystery Writer Awards called the Nio Marsh Awards. And so I thought, oh, she's having a little joke here. Yes. And like I'm feeling there's a few names that are dropped in here and there, but that was a little homage to Craig because yeah he was so brilliant organizing that tour for me like he designed posters and sent put me in touch with libraries and bookstores and readers and and other Kiwi writers so that was great that I was interviewed by New Zealand writers when I did those events so it was really nice really good. That's lovely and I do get a feeling just from that little sort of thing that you might also enjoy black humour. We won't explain why, but there's a teddy bear that features in the story. And right at the very end, there's a very nice touch with the teddy bear. And I was left smiling and thinking, you really do seem to have quite a sense of underlying black humour. Would that be right? Yeah, there's a lot of very dark, because the story is so dark, there's one aspect of the story that is very dark. Sally, who dominates the story, people laugh at her and she is not comfortable with that. Who would be? Uh, so, but she also has a really good sense of humor herself and she voices the kind of things. She's like me without a filter. She says things that you shouldn't say to people. She gets herself into really awkward situations a lot. And I like to play with that. There's one scene 
when like the really monstrous character goes to London and it's at the height of the IRA campaign. And when somebody hears his Irish accent, they accuse him of being an IRA member and he's absolutely astounded and shocked and horrified that somebody should call him or should think that he was a terrorist. When in fact, he is the worst terrorist on the domestic front than any IRA bomber ever was. He is such a monster. Um, so I've, I had a lot of fun with putting some humour in among the darkness because you can't write something relentlessly grim. You have to even it out, balance it out with some humour. So I tried to do that as much as I could. So I had fun with some of the characters. Some of the characters themselves are quite funny. And I think with Sally as well, because she sees everything black and white, she accepts everything that is told to her and she accepts everything that's presented to her. She doesn't really question things. So she doesn't see things like social class. She doesn't see why there should be a difference between black people and white people. And of course, she's right. But I just thought it was really interesting to play with that for somebody who actually doesn't see any difference. It's just not there for her. She just thinks humans are humans, which is true. And it's what we should all think. But unfortunately, racism does rear its head in every situation, especially in a small white Irish town. So Sally is the only person who is really able to tackle that head on. Yes. Talking about that kind of underlying humor, the scenes where Peter is taking care of someone in New Zealand and you get his inner dialogue where he's justifying all the things that he is doing for this person without giving anything away. You can't help smiling about the way that he's framing it all in such positive terms when it's really a very dark thing that's happening. Yes, yes, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, there's a lot of that kind of humour. So, yeah, he honestly believes it, though. He thinks because he... Because he's not his father. He's determined that he is a very different type of man to his father once he is realized what his father is. But it's taken him way too long to discover the truth about his father. He should have known all along, but because he's been so isolated and cut off from society, he actually doesn't know until it's really way too late to save a certain... Yeah. The book before this one, Little Cruelties, which I think the New York Times described as one of the best thrillers of 2020, it's also got a page-turning tagline. It's, uh, it's three brothers are at a funeral, one of them lies in the coffin, and we know right from the start that there's been a murder as well. So It takes us until pretty well the end of the book to discover who the one is in the coffin and how he got there. How do you come up with these amazing situations? Well, I generally just start with the first line. I mean, that line, there were three brothers at the drum funeral. One of us was in a coffin. That just came to me. And I didn't know, I didn't know who was dead or who had killed him until I got to that final point in the book. And I just took little snapshots of their lives to show I wanted to build up a rivalry between these three brothers up to a point where each of them would have a good reason to kill 
one or both of the others so that you, it was as unpredictable as possible as to who was actually going to be dead and as unpredictable as possible as to who had killed him. So, yeah, I like to surprise myself because I figure if I don't know what's going to happen, then the reader can't either. So in Strange Sully Diamond, I don't think, I don't think there's much that's guessable about the book. I don't think it's as much, there's a few kind of things where I try and throw the reader off course. There's a neighbor who, a new neighbor who arrives into the village who takes a sort of unhealthy interest in Sally. And you might think it's one character and it turns out to be a different kind of a character altogether. And so, yeah, I play with expectations. Every time I see something that where the next step is obvious, I try to find a way for that not to be the next step taken. I try to put yeah. obstacles in the way of that happening so that the character has to go and do something else. I guess that truly is character-driven plotting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's the first line which determines what kind of character we're dealing with. That paragraph tells you that Sally is atypical. And in the one about the brothers, we know that this is not a healthy brother's relationship. The first line of lying in wait is, my husband did not mean to kill any Doyle, but the lying tramp deserved it. Like all of the books have some setup that that raises questions. Yeah. Um, and I mightn't answer those questions until the very end of the book, or I might answer them halfway through. Mm. But then I have the consequences of the actions and the attitudes afterwards. I know that one of your books has been optioned for screen. I read that somewhere, but I just wondered, they all are really absolute ringers to be movies or TV series, but has anything much happened on that front? Oh, everything. It's just one of those things. I and mean, I think it happens a lot to writers that things get optioned all the time. And Leonardo DiCaprio's production company optioned Unraveling Oliver and renewed the option like three or four years in a row and then dropped it. And so that's up for grabs again. And Lying in Wait is currently optioned by an Irish production company. Strange Sally Diamond is being sent out around now by my agents in Los Angeles. See, sent out to all the streamers to have a look and there seems to be generating a lot of interest, which is great. But yeah, they've all been optioned and then the options have dropped. And I used to get my hopes up and I used to get really excited that something amazing was going to happen, especially when they're throwing names like Leonardo DiCaprio is going to do it and Kate Blanchett is going to play Lydia and all these names are being thrown about and uh, yeah, you get very excited, but then nothing happens. <laughs> yeah. Like really nothing happens. And while it's nice because every time the option gets renewed, you get a chunk of money, which is nice. But at the same time, I'd rather they just made the damn thing. Yeah. Because I'd like people to see it. I'd like to see it come to the screen. I'm not sure that I'd like to be involved in the writing of it. That's another question. But I'm not sure that I would want that. But at least, please, somebody make something of mine. <laughs> They're all there. All the, all the books are there. Lying in Wait is the only one that is currently up. Oh, sorry, Skin Deep. Somebody has just bought the option for Skin Deep as well. The third one. So Skin Deep and Lying in Wait are, have been optioned. And the other three 
are available. That's fabulous. Look, as a reader, we are starting to run out of time with this, but we always do like to ask our authors about their reading habits. And I did pick up that you in particular admired one of your fellow Irish novelists, Maeve Binchy. And so I thought, could you tell us a bit about your reading tastes, what you're reading at the moment, and your feelings about Maeve? Well, funny enough, I, I read a lot of Maeve Binchy when I was a teenager and everything. But I think the connection is that she went to the same school as I did. And I, yeah, and I feel like maybe she left some of her DNA on a desk. I picked (laughs) it up and I was able to run with it because I'm only the second writer that school has produced. It's a small enough school, but yeah, I like to think that there's some connection there. But yeah, love her stories of Irish life and the small village scenarios and young women emigrating in the 1950s, which of course happened again in the 1980s when I was a teenager, a late teenager. I ended up going to London and having the kind of adventures that she wrote about. So yeah, I'm fierce fondness for Maeve Vinci and her, I suppose her, her, what's the word? Person who takes over. The person who, the word for it. I'm sorry, I've gone blank. Oh, I am too, I'm afraid. You mean who's followed in her footsteps? Yes, the writer who would have followed in, Mar- in Maeve Finchie's footsteps is Marion Keyes, who is yeah. hugely popular and has hold, sold like 40 million books all over the world and is translated into 50 languages. And Marion happens to be a neighbour and a very good friend. So I'm very lucky to have that friendship. And much as I love my bitchy, I never actually met her, which I'm really sad about because I would have loved. I think she was just such, any radio interviews I heard of her, she was just such a force of nature and so generous to other writers. Like the other writers who knew her all talk about how generous she was to them and how she really set the tone for Irish writers to be generous to each other and to support each other as much as possible. Mm, I think mm. we all try to do that. Mm. And as for what you're reading at the moment? What am I reading at the moment? I'm reading a book by Sarah Hillary, an English writer. I can't think of the name of it off the top of my head, but it's a proof. I'm reading wall-to-wall proofs. I get sent about, oh, seven or eight proofs every week. Uh, I try to read as many as I can. I've read Vanda Simon's new book and I've read Paul Cleve's new book and I've read Fiona Sussman's new book. So yeah, you guys aren't doing too badly. I have to say they were all excellent, really excellent. And I'm trying to think who else I have read from your end of planet. Oh, Dame Fiona Kidman, who I met and adored when I met her in Dunedin. She's fantastic. Uh, um, she's just such a trailblazer and such a nice lady and so funny and entertaining for a lady of her age. She's fantastic. Another force of nature. Loved her. Lovely, Liz. Thank you. I imagine that having Maeve Bitchy in just in your world, perhaps helped you to realise that it was possible from a girl from your school to become an international writer. Maybe it was an aspirational thing that was set there for you. Well, actually, funnily enough, I didn't know that she went to my school until about, 
I'd say 15 years ago, I had no idea, like, because I think Lighter Penny Candle, her first book was published maybe in 1985, which is the year I left school. Uh-huh. I mean, the year before, but I don't remember any mention of her when I was in school. Yeah. I don't remember her being mentioned at all. Maybe the school thought that her writing was too lowbrow for them. I don't know. Because for Maeve Vinci, like Marion Keys too, like Australian writer Monica McInerney, have to battle to win respect because they're writing books that are are written for women and because of that men tend to put them down or dismiss them as candy floss fiction where in fact they're telling very real stories about very real lives and very real women with very real issues. So it's possible that Maeve Vinci was not respected at the time. She certainly was towards the end of her life but you know she was passed over. I don't think I don't recall her ever winning any major Literary awards in Ireland, certainly in the year, in, in the first years of her publishing, maybe later. But yeah, genre fiction is coming into its own a little bit more in recent years, maybe because of streaming TV and the storytelling has slightly changed. But yeah, for many years, genre fiction was very much regarded as second rate, wasn't it? It was, but I think it's really... Now, if you if you have a romance writer who writes really well, or you a crime writer who writes really well, or a science fiction writer who writes really well, you can get literary and crime in the same book. You can get literary and romance in the same book. You, literary fiction on its own can be quite dry and arid regarding plot, and often it's male navel male navel gazing if that's yeah yeah but some like i've read a lot of literary fiction in fact to to my shame i didn't read a lot of crime before i wrote my first book so it was only when it was shortlisted for that crime award my my first book that i read all of the other nominees and realized holy crap i have missed out on so much tremendously good writing being because I've dismissed this genre because I don't know I think the books that were coming to my attention the books that won the prizes were all books written by middle-aged white men and they were the only ones I heard about Mm. so I naturally gravitated towards them and then I discover oh my god I've missed out on this brilliant writing and then when I look back at the books that I did read like A Secret History, The Secret History by Donna Tartan. I think to myself, that's actually a crime novel or The Book of Evidence by John Banville, who won the Booker Prize. And I'm thinking that's actually a crime novel or Engleby by Sebastian Fox. These are all crime novels. They're literary crime novels, but they are crime novels nonetheless. So yeah, that fascinates me. Yeah. Look, just quickly before we do go, what is next for Liz, the author? In the next 12 months, what do you have on your desk? Oh, well, I have the first line of my next book. And I haven't got a second line yet. Well, I have worked out, in my head, I have worked out probably the first 20,000 words. I know the scenario. I know who the character is. And I don't know what's going to happen after that, but it will become apparent when I begin to write it. And so I will be writing 
certainly the first 20,000 words over the next couple of months. I'm doing a lot of traveling, an awful lot of traveling. I'm going to a festival in the Hamptons in Long Island in America. In two weeks' time, I am going to a lot of festivals in the UK and Ireland. Not getting to the Southern Hemisphere this year, but Iceland is on the cards. There's lots of crime festivals all over all over the world. That was in Poland and Germany and oh, all over. I've traveled a lot, but yeah, I hope to get back to New Zealand sometime. That's lovely. And do you enjoy interacting with your readers and where can they find you online? Oh, I'm on Twitter at Lizzie, at Lizzie Nugent, L-I-Z-Z-I-E Nugent, at Lizzie Nugent on Facebook, Liz Nugent. And I have my blue tick on Twitter. I think that might be taken away and I'm certainly not paying Elon Musk uh, to keep it. So I have it for now, but that might disappear. Uh, I'm on Instagram, but I'm... Great useless on Instagram. I'm not quite sure how to use it, but I'm at Liz Nugent Writer on Instagram. And yeah, I don't do TikTok. I'm just too old to learn another thing. <laughs> I think Twitter and Instagram are as much as I can do. But I hope that book talk TikTok finds me because apparently they're very influential. So it'd be great if they could find me because I haven't a hope of finding them. Old head. <laughs> Look, that's wonderful, Liz. Look, thank you so much for your time. And just before we go, all of those links that you've mentioned will be in the show notes for this episode on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com. So you'll be able to follow them up there. But thanks so much, Liz. It's been wonderful talking. Thank you. Thank you so much. Next week, Carol Drinkwater, the beloved actress of the All Creatures Great and Small TV show, now very well-selling novelist, and non-fiction writer. Her latest book, An Act of Love, is a sweeping and evocative World War II love story set in the French Alps. Forced to flee war-ravaged Poland, 17-year-old Sarah and her parents find refuge in a dilapidated house high in the French Alps. But soon the Nazis close in, casting a long shadow that will force them to make some hard choices. That's next week, an act of love from Carol Drinkwater. That's it for today. Just a reminder before I go, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review or a comment somewhere so others will find us too. That's it. Happy reading and see you next time.